Coffee Time Wednesdays with uh, the Prairie Farm Podcast. Can't hit us with the jingle. Do 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 do. We are all full of pizza right now. We are celebrating the end of planting season, the busiest time of the year. Now, we have two planting seasons, one in the spring, which is in June, and the other in November. Or, Well, I guess you kind of say November, more so December, probably. Yeah, yeah really. we usually get to it around early December. Yep. And um, the spring one, way busier. Way, way busier. Oh, yeah. Always. And it's not because it's better. It's just because that's what farmers are used to planting time. They just got mm. done planting all their corn and beans, and then they call us and say, hey, we need to get our CRP in. So the majority of, of prairie and wildflower plants are plants in the spring. Although, I think it was Russell Kurt's daughter. I saw a post that she had where she was starting a trend where she believes the best time to plant seeds are right when the... Um, the species drops its seeds. So she pays attention to the species. If it drops its seeds in May, she plants it. If, it. if it drops in October, she plants it. I actually sat in this week at the North American Prairie Conference on a session that examined that, like there was a study about that. Oh, what did they say? Um, I think the results were kind of mixed. Uh, I think... Uh, for some cases that did work the best in other cases, it was better to plant all at once and in the fall. So it's almost like summer. some of those species aren't or not late evolving summer. Yet. It was in like the fall. Yeah. Hmm. Well, haven't hit their peak of evolution or just maybe they depend on, you know, some other, you know, maybe when there's a whole bunch of seeds on the ground, maybe you're getting more uh wildlife coming in there and eating some of the some of those other seeds or eating some of the competition oh that's true because a lot also, of the seeds need a, a bird poop yeah they need, or, they need or, a yeah, or fertilizing stuff like that you know it could be something like that but also you know i heard the other day on uh this is a nod to uh the mediator podcast ezra and i were listening to it while we were man ezra freaking smoked kent on mediator trivia yes, <laughs> his first try and i just want everybody in the world to know right now nick just wants to do that because i wouldn't let him uh well anyways ruin, smoked him like ruin his nine reputation to four or something like that yeah not that bad it's like nine to six nine to seven. six <laughs> but but uh anyways yes ezra's very good at, at meteor trivia i did beat him the next week though but anyways uh so now you made me lose my turn oh so we're listening to meteor while we're working out in the coreopsis field <clears throat> And, um, it was a tree guy from Vermont and he talked about, or they, I don't know if somebody asked or what it was, but you know how oak trees have like an every other year, or maybe it's an every third year when there's like a big acorn production year and all of them drop. It's not just like, Oh, you know, most of the oak trees are dropping this year. Like it's all at once. And I've always wondered that too. Like, how do they know? You know, like, why, why does that happen? I'm sure it's some sort of enzyme is, is activated by a certain environmental factor that causes that trigger to happen, you know, a cellular response. But um, he explained from a natural selection or adaptation standpoint why these trees do this and why they don't say, hey, everybody's going that year. I'm going to go this year. He said it would be disadvantageous to the tree to do that, to be on an off year, because now they're the only one with acorns on the ground. And so all the squirrels are like, hey, there's no acorns except for that trees. Hmm. And then they eat every last one of them. And because remember, an acorn is supposed to be yeah. the next generation of tree. That happened with the, the chicken bacon ranch today. It just went real quick. That, that pizza went real quick. That was very good. It was good pizza. Ken, are you going to introduce our guest our guest, you know is what? A, you could just get off. You, you could. Ken and I got this. No. <laughs> All right. See you later. <laughs> no, we are happy to be joined today by Lance Brisboy of. I could have told you every other time what the company is called. Golden Hills R C N D. Yes, R C N D. What does the R C N D stand for again? Resource Conservation and Development. Hmm. Very good. Golden, That's awesome. Golden Hills is and a board most... member of the Iowa Prairie Network. Yep. Yep. Most people just call it Golden Hills, though, right? Yeah. It's just 
that's the normal lingo. Yep. And he is way out on the western frontier. Uh, my dad, who is from that area, is from Council Bluffs. I remember when we were kids, he used to love to drive us around his old neighborhood, and there are some rough neighborhoods <laughs> in Council Bluffs, and he grew up in one of them. And, in fact, the house across the street uh, had somebody's graffiti on the front door. Uh, what was it? Enter if you dare. <laughs> so there's like no windows in the house. I mean, it's just a just a a rough area there. But there's some really nice parts of Council Bluffs too. But anyways, we'd be driving around and we'd be like, "Oh, Dad, don't go down there! Don't go down there!" You know, like freaked out, locking the doors on the car and stuff. Uh, but then he'd like take us to all of his old childhood haunts. You know, the the places he liked to hang out. And um, there was this one street. I don't remember the name of the street, but he said we were always told. This is where the West officially starts. Like the Midwest ends here and the West, you know, when you say I'm going out West. Were they all that, gunslingers like on that side of the street? They all had guns. No, but everyone had a handlebar mustache. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> even the women, they all had even a handlebar the, Even mustache. the children. It was very. <laughs> <laughs> that could be more related to an Iowa water quality issue. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. How was that for a transition? But anyways, uh, maybe that's why, going back to the seed thing, maybe maybe that's why. Why was we talking about the West? Oh, just where you're located. Anyways, we got Lance here. We're talking about the prairie planting stuff. That might just be my hypothesis, though, is it works better for uh, seeds to be planted all at once uh, just because now you're not standing out by yourself to seed predators yeah. but also the fertilization aspect of you know you got birds pooping and mice pooping that's true so do they communicate with each other through the mycelium to say which year they're going to do it i don't know if oak trees do that but i did hear recently about there's some big time research into that yeah. trees communicating through that through that way with each other i don't what was that species was it uh was it like a, a pine species or something that Let's explain for the non-scientists, which I mean, I totally, I totally understand what you guys are talking about. But for anyone listening, that that doesn't. Lance, you want to take it away? Uh, I'm not an expert, but there's fungi in the soil, and there's a web that connects trees and other plants. But the trees can communicate to each other. That's just avatar. Yeah, through the through the roots, and uh, mycelium and roots, which oh, I always mix this up. My my I think it's how you pronounce it. I actually, I, I heard think. Russ Benedict talking about that's a fungi, right? But that interacts with the yeah that interacts with the root system of trees as well. Okay, but it's but like a beneficial my, parasite, basically. Not really a parasite, more of a uh, well, maybe yeah, a little bit. I guess I always kind of viewed it more as a. Well, I think there's some cases where it's more of a mutualistic than a parasitic thing. Like they help the tree in some way, like either with obtaining moisture or additional nutrients because they're breaking down stuff in the soil around the roots. And I just want to formally apologize to my science teacher, Mrs. Wank, telling her that I would never use any of this stuff. Like, <laughs> Here we are. But, but uh, yeah, trees, trees do uh, communicate. I don't know if... I mean, I suppose if it can happen with one species, it could definitely happen with yeah. other. But that's a great question. I would I would expect it to be more of just a generalized environmental, you know, like a... So enzymes are specialized proteins in cells that are greatly influenced by temperature and uh, change in pH would be, would be probably the biggest. But even, you know, like I suppose you could have moisture level differences or any kind of other chemical... Uh, introduction right yeah to the environment and uh so i would assume that it's more it's kind of like deer you know when why do all the deer shed their antlers at the same time you know well it's because there's a photo uh sensitive response where uh what do they call it phototropic response i think is the better term there or something like that uh where they as the number of daylight hours decreases going into winter it causes a chemical change in the deer or the elk or the moose whatever antlered critter you want to talk about and um, it causes a drop in testosterone production and so they, the antlers fall off huh fascinating but anyways is that I, a thing for us too 
Do we have less testosterone in the winter? <laughs> I don't know. Man, we'll need to look that up. I think I've heard that sunlight actually does boost testosterone, so that might yeah. be true. I want to burn Nick so bad right now. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you're going to say about me working inside? <laughs> I have wondered because when Ken first started working here. Oh, was, my goodness. <laughs> <all right. laughs> I, I held off on you, Nick. Oh, so. All right. so you have heard Lance before when we had the Super Friends episode with all of those uh, really cool people. We went out to the Lust Hills. We did a little little tour. Actually, it wasn't a little tour. That tour gassed the heck out of me. I've been running, and I still... <laughs> you know, because still... Nick just doesn't get as much sunlight. Yeah, I got less testosterone. <laughs> That's true, his, muscle, his muscle density is, eh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Look, man, th- they were some big hills. Those, I, and we'd, like, get up a hill... And then I'd like in the distance see another one. Like, oh no! And at one oh, point no. in the distance, Nick saw the rest of us because he was way behind. <laughs> I had to use the bathroom. All right, <laughs> I was, which was fascinating. I think I brought this up on a previous podcast about if you pee on plants in the summer, it helps them, but if you pee on them in the winter, it kills them. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. And and so this was like a very informal um, thing done by a guy who was one of our tour guides there. His name's Chad. We're really oh, wow. Don't, don't call him out on this study. No, no. He was telling me because he like was understood the science behind it. He thought it was the bacteria. The bacteria was dormant in the winter that would actually help break down anything that was harmful. But in the summer, when it was vibrant, it would break everything down and turn it into nitrogen or, you know, whatever yeah. it needed to be turned into. And I just, that blew my mind, man. That blew my mind. But so you heard Lance on there. He, uh, when you when I first met him, he was real quiet. But then I heard him start to talk about prairie and and conservation and and knows ecosystems. a lot. He great so great much. plant ID guy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So what what got you started? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I was just talking the other day with somebody about in sixth grade. Actually, we went on a field trip to Hitchcock Nature Center. So that was one of the first memories I have of a prairie and learning about prairies. And we spent time. We went out and. We had a notebook and they told us to either just draw or write something. And so I wrote a poem about the prairies. And that's one of my first memories was at oh, Hitchcock. Very cool. Wow. And then I moved away to college and I didn't study prairies or anything like that. But then I moved back and just out of, I think, looking for an activity, I started hiking a lot. And then when I was there, I thought, what are all these plants? There's so many flowers. So I just started to learn and then fell in love with the prairies and I've been learning more and more ever since then man yeah now he does conservation work yeah yep. what, do you, what, what do you do out there so i'm the deputy director of golden hills i've been there almost nine months or nine years next month so um i'm gonna put a pause on you peyton our good friend is here <laughs> and as you can tell we are busy you might want to start stop and start it so i know in three, two, one. So I'm the deputy director at Golden Hills RCND. Um, I've been there uh, in July. It'll be nine years. Uh, I started as a project coordinator, um, working on a variety of projects relating to conservation and outdoor recreation. What's um, your least favorite of those projects? Least favorite. Wow, hmm. we we'll start with a negative. Well, yeah. I want to end with a positive. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say there's any projects that I don't like. It's more, there's a lot of times where I'm just sitting at a computer for a really long time. Oh. And that's, I don't really love that. But yeah. So <laughs> what, what's your favorite tasks or projects? Uh, I really like when we get to go out in the fall, especially when it's, you know, those beautiful fall days and do the mm. seed harvesting by hand. And that's cool. Wandering the Los Hills Prairies. How much seed production or harvesting do you do? We're, it's a really small scale. Uh, we all, okay. we do it all by hand. So we get volunteers to go out to places like Hitchcock and other properties and pick seed by hand. And then most of that that we pick is given back to the land manager, whether it's county conservation or DNR. And then we keep a really tiny amount and we've done uh, some seed packs, seed packets. Um, and then we also do very small scale seed pro- or plant propagation with, from, with those seeds. We have a partnership with Iowa Western Community College and they let us use their greenhouse to grow native plants. So, that's but again, really cool. that's what do you do you with know, those? A few then? thousand plants total. So, oh yeah, and yeah. We, I guess 
that's just several tray plug trays. What, what, so what do you end up doing? Uh, we have a native plant sale in the spring, so it's that's just cool. um, that's awesome. local people pretty much. Yeah, come. and do you normally sell out? And pretty much, we had a few left over this year, but I think we might have. They might all be accounted for now. So, man, okay. that is really cool. Yeah, and every year we have more interest. This year we had uh, kind of a rush at the sale. A lot of people came right at the start, and uh, it was it was nice to see that there's a growing interest. How, yeah, that that is a big deal. So, like our backyard pollinator sales, yep. they're just getting bigger and bigger every year. Yeah. What uh, um, uh, with those what. Uh, like what size of plant are you like little plugs or like full pots or uh just plugs so we've this year we purchased the containers oh and, uh, is that what john judson yep and they're really nice and we we're hoping that we can get some of them back just because they're pretty expensive and we can reuse them so. yeah because they're patented right he yeah like i think so it's those. like a specific company man i think i saw those at uh grinnell college's greenhouse okay i think yeah um, they're really nice but uh so you said something there. You said you like to uh, get outside in the fall, and um, that reminds me. Ezra just walked into the room here. Um, what? What do you mean? No, I'm just pointing at Ezra. Oh, I'm giving okay. directions. Ez- kind of. <laughs> That's not how you give directions. <laughs> yeah, I usually give directions like, "Hey, Peyton." <laughs> <laughs> Although when I'm talking to Dad, Anyways. I'm like, "Hey, could you maybe? Would you have time to possibly maybe could?" Uh, I like stutter bunch. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> oh man, no. Um, <laughs> Ezra and I have talked about many times while we were hoeing weeds that summer vacation is stupid. Like it is that is the that is the worst time of the year for a school to take off. It should be a fall break and a spring break because what is everybody oh no 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 all you going right now uh-uh summer's what do you do all day in the summer be honest with me be honest with me people you sit in the ac where can you sit in the ac all fucking day we're jelly you can sit in the ac at school should and then you wouldn't the have as big of a bill you should have the fall off and you should have the summer or in the spring off when the weather is the best and you get outside and enjoy yourself yeah. instead of dying of heat stroke yeah i'm not a fan of the heat I yeah don't me neither tolerate it so well. you're saying like six weeks april through part of may and then six more weeks second half of september through october right and then you know good. and just keep because you still have those weeks too for like uh well at least for um uh spring break you know most schools have a spring break just roll that into either the spring or divide it in half and add some tax some days onto both but you know what i think is silly well i could go on and on about college <laughs> But college, my brother was in college until recently. He had a break like every other week. He'd be like off for for nothing. They'd be like, yeah, well, this week our baseball team won their first game in 6,000 years. So we're actually going to have the week off. And all the professors are like, yes. you know. And, and then they're like, I guess we don't have to have the lunch room open. So we get all that money that you guys paid for lunches that week. You know what I mean? They're... Uh, so I feel like they just have so many times. I'm like, how do you even learn? Nick's going to start a for-profit college. <laughs> <laughs> what would you educate people on? With Dude, every college is for-profit, but instead of calling it education for profit, they call it sports for profit. <laughs> yeah, there's some truth there. I, I, Isn't one of the reasons we have a summer break though, so that kids can work on the farm? Yeah, it's yeah. cultural lag. Huh? In, in, and which makes no sense either. <laughs> in, in my junior year of high school, I was asked if, or I was on the debate team, and, and my one presentation was I was given like 10 minutes to prepare. And they asked, should you have longer summer break or shorter summer break? Something like that was the question. And I said, there should be no summer break. The fact that we even have summer break is just cultural lag. Not, I mean, kids work on the farm, but like the percentage of kids that work on the farm three three students across the, the midwest <laughs> no like in my class of like 30 ish kids probably five heartily work yeah on yeah if no, you but have, i was in a rural community. livestock farms four. Oh sure. yeah but even like even grain farms like yeah, you might help with hauling some some grain around that's going on right now actually but um uh at that time though somebody was talking about this this week at the conference 
you know, a lot of weed control in fields happened during the summer when high school kids and junior high kids would walk beans, you know, and literally yeah, pull yeah. weeds by my mom. Or detasseling corn. And dad did that, right. And then the other was detasseling corn. And there's still some detasseling that goes on for like um, uh, seed engineering companies, you know, so like the GMO producers, they're. Uh, so for 0.01% of cornfields? <laughs> well, well, uh, those companies own quite a few acres. They're basically their test plots. Yeah. Or their fields where they're propagating seed for sale. Um, they will hire, so, you know, like Pioneer will hire you know, a busload of kids to come out for two weeks in the summer and detest or something. But, but yeah, you're right. Um, you know, unless you have a, a livestock operation, even that work time, the time off for when would be more useful for working on the farm would also be in the spring and in the fall for planting and harvest, you know? Yeah, man, I, that's, it's just weird to me the way that we, do the world <laughs> yeah it is start with summer vacation change that change but summer it is vacation. it's interesting too though because i think people have this idea that rural and farm are synonymous but oh most yeah. most people in rural communities are not farmers yeah so. you can live in the country and have no idea someone asked me the other day that lives in a rural community um oh so driving a tractor that'd be driving a clutch and they're thinking of like a clutch in a car driving a clutch for a car and and that's just not how tractors are driven and you would think someone who like lives outside of town would you know would, would like be familiar with tractors, but that's just not the case i mean i had friends who in high school lived in des moines and when they would go to other places they'd be like oh do you drive a tractor to school you live in iowa like, <laughs> nobody i mean there were there were like six kids in my class that knew how to drive a tractor you know what i mean yeah they just well it's not the same you know what else is interesting is Tractors seem timeless, but my grandpa, who is still very much alive and in good health, he's 86, when he was born, yeah, every farm probably had a tractor at that point, but not for long, like like maybe five years. There, were, you know, Go back five years before he was born, and now you're talking there's definitely farms that didn't have a tractor yet. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So... Like that era of where we got that association from that, oh, everybody from Iowa knows how to operate a tractor to the reality that, no, almost nobody in Iowa knows how to operate a tractor. Like that window of time there, like came and went and really fast. The operators are knowing how to operate the tractor less. That's why they have like these full-time mechanic computer scientists come out and work on their tractor for ten thousand dollars. Well, and that's a whole nother can of worms right to repair and everything <laughs> yeah, else. Yeah. But. We're here to take on the world. Lance, are you with us? <laughs> you know who would be? Peyton. Peyton. <laughs> but, uh, no, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. And, um, yeah, it's something I think we should look at for sure. But so out there in the Lust Hills, do you – one of the things you kind of – I think it was you that said it. Maybe it was Dustin when we were there. Um you guys talked about how there was a specific species of flower there on the prairie that uh, um, was, I think you said this was the farthest east when we were in the Lust Hills. This was the farthest east that that flower species could be found. Yeah, there's a few species. Um, yucca is one of those that it they're found throughout the Lust Hills, but then you generally don't really find them east of there. Is Western Yarrow another one? It might be. I'm not sure. Okay. Local weed. That was one that you pointed out to me. Yeah. Do we? Is that a tall grass piece or is that a mixed short? I think grass? it's more mixed. I think it likes the drier. Okay. Mm. That was prairies. beautiful. It looked yeah. very similar to uh, purple prairie clover, if I remember correctly, but like bigger. It's yeah. It's got a purple. It's pretty low to the ground too. And an early bloomer because this was yep. June one when we were out there. I think it was in full bloom. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was beautiful. Um, that's fascinating. I was talking to, I mean, the difference between just now I'm starting to realize that tall grass and short grass prairies actually come from, uh, the composition of the soil and the, uh, moisture levels. Yeah. I did not realize Tell that. the fact that you learned this week about, uh, the planting ratio. That was super interesting. Oh, that, that well, we along. talked about it Wednesday, but oh, did we? the, 
Yeah, I always just assumed more more flowers was better. Just more, more seats per square foot. And they were saying, like, no, actually 50-50 is just in Tallgrass Prairie, 50-50. And then John Judson, who I guess is coming up again. Guys, what we need you to do is go to diversityfarms.com and email them and say, John, please go on the <laughs> Actually, I don't, I don't think they – I'm not sure that they have a website. I think They, have, they do. Do they? Yeah. They yeah. tried finding it. Oh, no, yeah. They, they got a, they got oh. a place. Shoot, shoot them a call. And lobby, lobby that man to come on our podcast because yes. I really want to pick his brain for an hour and a half. But he was saying that um, he actually, if he is shooting for 50-50, he'll actually go more like 30-70. Um, or, no, 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 sorry. He'll go like 20% tall grass, 30% short grass, and then 50% Forbes. But then he knows that the tall grass will end up being more like 40% with 10% short grass because... He said, "Without you know the the munchers, the the old uh, the old bison to chomp down on the big blue stem, it, you just it's an increaser. It will forever increase. And what was it? Russ Benedict said, uh, in a, even a really well planted prairie, and with nothing grazing on it in a hundred years, it will be big, just straight big blue stem. <laughs> yeah, it, probably switch grass. We should probably just transition this conversation and talk about some of the impactful things we." picked up this week at the conference which was just an awesome experience i thought we were going to talk about poop we are going to talk about poop eventually that's all i want to talk about <laughs> as like a general being there has been a fly that just hangs on to nick so maybe it's he really he literally has poop on He's his my mind friend. He's fred the fly <laughs> just but, named but him. uh anyways um that just became more and more abundantly clear to me this week at the conference because i sat in on quite a few uh, uh, sessions that talked about grazing like prairies what made prairies so unique was that it was a whole ecosystem like prairie wasn't just part of an ecosystem it was really the ecosystem and if you're going to have a prairie ecosystem you got to have all the players and uh, Nick and I learned about a new thing called a hemiparasite oh my word no <laughs> idea that was a thing <laughs> and I think I uh, actually saw one when um I went through a prairie remnant, and it was, it was interesting. It was just like this little small plant that was just totally different than the other plants around. I was like, hey, what's that? And to our, our prairie guide, they're like, oh, that's a, you know, uh, what is it, a toad flax or something? Bastard toad flax? Yeah. 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 Bastard toad flax. Yeah, that. Dude, that guy <laughs> was angry with that plant when he named that stupid bastard toad flax. And then his scientist assistant was like, okay, I guess that's the name. And he just wrote it down. <laughs> but uh but anyways um yeah i think it was a i think it, yeah i think that's what it was but um without the grazers <clears throat> these prairies get invaded by invasive species big time uh especially grasses you know and historically that wouldn't have been a problem until the uh colombian uh, exchange started taking place and all of these you know seeds really both intentionally and unintentionally started coming in from all around the world and got into our seed bank here in North America but um, you need those grazers to maintain that prairie and so we try to compensate for that mostly I would say with fire would you guys agree with that that we try to yeah, yeah. most of our grazing especially on CRP acres with fire or chemical burn down in spot treated areas um, but most acres, most prairie acres, I'd say the vast majority of prairie acres, uh, at least in the tall grass prairie, are no longer grazed. What if humans learn to eat big blue stem? Do you think that'd fix the problem? No, we don't have a digestive <laughs> tract that can handle something that fibers. cellulose. Yeah. Look, guys, the founder of Hyundai, he grew up eating bark. Hmm. So it can be done. Good to know. Yeah. I do know the Land Institute in Kansas, they're researching perennial grains, and uh, they're trying to you know, get native species. I talking about it. Was that you talking about that? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> they, uh, I've been Chad. They have a beer, I know, and I think they've made some fiber, like for clothing, but I don't know about other foods. Last year, um, uh, we have a local guy here who uh, picks and cleans some... Uh, milkweed for mm -hmm. us and sells it to us um and he brought in all of the uh all of the uh cotton i guess for yeah. lack of a better term that came off those milkweed pods like 
Peyton's sitting here by me. Peyton saw it. That pile of cotton off that milkweed that Roscoe brought in, you could have, like, made a pair of pants out of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was... Tents always need was extra incredible. pants in the bar, <laughs> dude. I'll leave that dirty. So, um, Kelly Kinsher. Kinsher, mm-hmm. he's a friend of Taylor Keene. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, he's... Like an edible yeah. plant expert, he uh, he wrote a book, "Edible Wild Plants of the Prairie" and "Medicinal Wild Plants of the Prairie," and I'm really excited to have that guy on the podcast. Nice. I I will be deeply bummed if he says no, because that's wow, just putting the pressure on him now. Yeah, wow. there's a company, and I think they're in Western Nebraska that makes comforters with milkweed floss. Really? Yeah. Whoa! Get them on the podcast. Yeah, we got to yeah. get them on the podcast. Man, we had some serious product to give them. <laughs> Did you know that the Nebraska Furniture uh, Mart was started by a um, was started by a lady in Russia, and she was the only person that uh, ever um, stood up Warren Buffett for his. He had like a shareholder meetings. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. He had shareholder. I remember you meetings. saying? I remember you saying something about this story to me and, once. And so she was from Russia. She didn't really go to school. I think she went to school through third grade or something. And then she came over here and was just such a hard worker. She made it happen. And when she was like 85, um, she wasn't at one of Warren Buffett's shareholder meetings because he had bought out her business. So she was supposed to be there. And he put in his speech, uh, I would like to thank everyone for being here except for Mrs. B, who has no time for silly business such as <laughs> shareholder meetings. But they're right, they're, she's like right there in Omaha. Was. I, I think she passed away at like the age mm. of 1,000. It's a huge, <laughs> huge uh, area to buy furniture. I went there one time for my aunt to pick up a couch for her. So Nick found something else impactful at the uh, conference this week. He uh, was walking around checking out all the uh, vendor booths. Did it feel good to be at a big show and not be running a vendor oh, booth? Oh my goodness, yes! And I and and we had like other seed companies that were there that I like, you know, I know the people there, and I just want to be like, hack, <laughs> you have to sit in a booth. Um, but it was pretty cool. Well, I thought it was good. Was Lance had to sit in a booth? Yep. A lot of those, a lot of those vendors were able because just the way that the conference flowed, they kind of like hit because everybody was so busy being in sessions while the sessions were going on. Uh, the vendor booths, I, th- I assume the people manning them were in the sessions too. Yeah, right. I think because I would go out there to use the bathroom. Or like, guys, it was so long to sit there. I needed a break. Nick has ADHD. <laughs> no, I honestly. I think I do too. It, yeah, it was were, hard. Were you... It was hard. I got up a lot. And... Yeah. <laughs> I know. As a former teacher, I noticed that pretty quick about Nick at this sitting through class time. <laughs> was I was like shaking. I, I was like, I would feel my knees. <laughs> Honestly, All of a sudden, Nick would just. I wanted to be like, I need to talk right now. <laughs> I don't. I know I don't know near enough to present, but I should be presenting just so I can say words out loud. <laughs> I have to share one funny story. So we had one funny moment, and then we'll talk about what Nick found at one of the vendor booths. Nick and I, I think it was the last session that Nick was in on for uh, the conference, and uh, we walked in the room, and I'm like, "Hey, there's two seats up there." In the front, I'll go get him. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and Nick's like, "All right." So I'm following Ken, so, and we're in the middle, and walking towards and the, the front. Like so, started. and there's probably a hundred people, people in are there. Talking. And, yeah, the guys presenting, and I notice that what I thought was going to be two available chairs was not going to be available. <laughs> And they were blocked by someone else. Yeah, they uh. were blocked by somebody else. And so I just quick dart down another row. He abandoned <laughs> me. He just he was like, yeah, I see two chairs up there in the front. And it's like hard to get chairs in this place. I was like, awesome. I'll follow you. And then he just takes off, takes one chair right next to the aisle. So I'm in the middle of the room, a six foot two Asian man standing in the middle of this room. The presenter is presenting. I'm making noise. And I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? He just looked at me like partly wounded, partly angered. Mostly confused. (laughs) And I was laughing so hard. So the people that I went and sat by thought I had like some kind of a problem or something. Yeah. Yeah. What I ended up saying was I looked at him and then I was like, well, and then I just moved forward. I just kept going and I was. Ended up fighting a chair, and I kicked some, uh, some old man's knee 
on the way to my chair. Oh, man. And I'm pretty sure the guy next to me there kept farting because something smelled terrible. Oh. And I kept checking if it was me. And I don't think it was me. But all because Kent swore he was going to take care of me. He was going to lead me to the oh, promised man. land. Yeah, and I knew all and this. I knew all this dr- future drama that we're sharing with you right now was going to unfold. So that's why I was laughing uncontrollably <laughs> sitting there. Oh, well, but, when I wasn't in a session, yes, I was perusing through. Which, which Nick left that session early. I will add. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was so heartbroken by Kent and his evil desires. Um, so I was, I was perusing through the book section. I, University of Iowa um, has done a lot of. Um, work. I believe a lady named Holly has been an editor for or a producer for a lot of books to do with Conservation of Prairie in Iowa. And one of them, oh, we, we might get in trouble for this. <laughs> one of them is called The Swine Republic by Chris Jones. And I was like, what the heck is that? And it basically talks about agriculture in Iowa. Now, we've talked a lot about chemical chemicals run off into the water, they're creating a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, they're creating algae blooms, uh, algae, algal blooms, algal blooms in, you know, I mean, Lake Red Rock, I live near Lake Red Rock and all the time they're like, Hey, don't swim this weekend. You know, the water is green, you know, um, which <laughs> yeah, E. coli is usually what shuts a, a beach down. Hmm. Well, so I'm, I'm, uh, working on, or I, I was, uh, looking through all of that and the Holly showed me this book by Chris Jones and. And she showed me something absolutely fascinating. It was this graph where, and I think we talked about this on the last podcast, um, but it was this graph where it showed every major city or lots of major cities like Tokyo and London and Des Moines. And it, it's, it was basically how much poop is produced in Tokyo every year is produced in this part of Iowa by the pigs there in one year. And, and we were sitting here talking earlier and Peyton was like, and Peyton's got a big logical brain. He's like, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> so we started doing the math. We found out how many pigs are in Iowa, how much poop they produce every day, how much poop humans produce every day. And it's real. And it has like, it probably had like 60 major cities in, in Iowa. That's how much poop just this state produces. Well, it was mathematically, it was, you know, based off of the... The pooping rate for humans and the pooping rate for uh, which man, what a great ratio to calculate uh, for pigs. Um, and then the population of pigs within uh, Iowa. That pooping rate uh, converted over to the equivalence of two hundred fifty-three million was the number I think. Peyton, was that the number? Something like that. Two hundred. What was our, when we when we did our math? Was it two hundred fifty-three million? About, so there's about two hundred million. Statistically, there's about two hundred million people's worth of poop in pigs, <laughs> um, in Iowa. Yeah, just in Iowa. Eleven pounds yeah. 11 per pounds pig per, per day. Yeah. And yeah. there was and there was twenty-three million pigs, and a little over twenty-three million pigs. Um, yeah, and it was it was a, it was basically an eleven to one ratio, right? Yes. So, yeah. so uh, pigs poop eleven times as much as humans do in a day, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it makes me want to not eat sausage. <laughs> Thinking about like because twenty three million pigs in, and I don't see hog confinements that often. You don't see them right. anymore. There's just a few. There's some giant ones tucked around, um, mm-hmm. and you don't see them. And I'm not here hating on hog producers. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have more than a producer problem we have a consumption problem um, right because we want a lot of pork and we want it really really cheap um and that is just not uh that's the only option if you want those yeah. two things yeah because think about it it used to be in order to get in order to get meat you had to like hunt something down you had to like outrun something or outsmart something now for a pound of meat you need to work for about 15 minutes yeah. That's how much work uh, like average person's pay you need to do to get about a pound of pork. And yeah. that's probably it's probably shorter than that. It's probably like eight minutes. Right. And so that's where again our phrase you've got to see value beyond the dollar. It's worth paying more for something so that producers don't have to do it that way. Yeah. And then also being mindful of consumption. I mean <clears throat> you know, we 
we have a lot of health issues related to overconsumption of all kinds of goods, you know, food being one of them, but also uh, different chemical substances. Um, uh, sometimes it can be an overconsumption of just a bad habit, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think, you know, in our very materialistic mindset and our, I got to have it when I want it as much as I want attitude yeah. on things. That is, that is what creates this. But just to kind of put that all into perspective, that 200, and I think it was more than that. I think it calculated out because it wasn't how many, how many, uh, pigs was it? Was it 23 million? 23 million. So 23 million times 11, that's definitely more than 200 that's uh, million. 250 million. Yeah. Around 200. Cause it was 11.1, right? Pounds. Uh, so, so, uh, yeah, it was like 250 million. There's 330 million people in the United States. So we have almost the equivalent of the United States population. Poop in Well, Iowa. not almost, but two-thirds. Yeah. But, and, and over two-thirds. We, we do our best to use it well, but there's only so much manure you can put on the yeah. ground before it's going to run into the... Streets. Right, there, and, and water treatment plants, there's only so much they can do to try and you know get those nitrate levels down and Man. phosphate levels down and lance what 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 did you learn while you were there uh i learned a lot of things it was a long conference <laughs> there was a lot there. yeah a lot to learn um one thing that stood out to me that was really interesting is on the field trips especially uh because i'm so used to the Lus hills prairies and they are different species there was some species in the prairies that we went to that I'm not super familiar with, or I don't see them a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I recognize them, but it's cool to see the difference in central Iowa versus the Lus Hills. Did you have a favorite that you saw that was kind of a new one to you? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, let's see. I don't know. I really don't see a lot of Baptisia in the Lus oh, Hills. Yeah. So that one's always nice to see. It's in reconstructions a lot, but mm-hmm. it's in the remnants in central Iowa too. Just don't see yeah. a lot in the Lus Hills remnants. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good one. Um, I talked about the remnants that I saw in our last Coffee Time Wednesday that we did. I found uh, the name for that one that I couldn't remember. Nick, it's it was purple milkwort, was what it was called, and it was it was really pretty. Um, mm. But yeah, my there's so much to take away from this week. Um, great stuff on ag sustainability and and uh you know sustainable and regenerative processes that go into agriculture there's a lot on burning uh prescribed fire um uh, we talked about this in our coffee time as well uh i think fire was a topic every single day that you could go and, and listen in on and i actually heard a guy present who is from australia which yes, I would you know twenty five percent of the reason that I was was in there was for the accent. <laughs> I was I was uh, I was uh, actually planning to go to a different session at that time that was about like prairie reconstruction and that's what we do, but then that guy started talking. I'm like, oh man, I can't leave. This his voice is too cool. Was it um, good? Oh, it was very good. He did a great job. In fact, I'd love to get him on the podcast sometime. Um, he's he has studied the history of Aboriginal fire uh, on the Australian grasslands. And then, so learning about how the Aborigine people would, you know, first of all, he was answering the question, did they actually manage with fire? And he determined, yeah, historically we have record of that. Um, Then kind of looking at, okay, how did they do it? And how how can we incorporate that again? And uh, so that was really interesting. Listen to that. Um, there was some on uh, prairie strips. So uh, uh, I know there's, I think, one or two people on the IPN board, aren't there, that, have, that are part of the prairie strip yep. yeah. uh, studies going on at Iowa State that have been going on for a while now. And uh, that was really interesting hearing some of the work on that. Yeah, some, I really liked what she said that uh, what the world has a fever and prairie is the cure. I, I don't know if I... I I might not have been in for that one. Uh, the one I heard was by, uh, I think his name is Dr. Cole something. Yeah, I saw him too. He was That was yesterday. I think that was the last session I heard. Um, but it was interesting. There were some unexpected outcomes too. Like there was something with like they had to research out how 
they actually saw when they measured their data, they saw some yield loss in some fields uh, uh, for, of corn and beans. And they, they looked into that, what was that? And they, I think they kind of determined it was, it wasn't because of the prairie strips. It was because of other factors. And um, it was, it was uh, interesting though, just to, just to see about all that. Um, we also uh, sat in on some insect talks. Laura Walter gave a tremendous uh, talk on um, hers was titled, insect friends foes and frenemies and uh what i always appreciate about laura is she comes from a seed producer mindset because that's her job she's she's cultivating plants at the uni tall grass prairie center but she doesn't like she's not like a for-profit business right it's it's for research purpose yeah but um uh but still they're trying to propagate seeds for um Uh, the, I think the roadside program, right? Is no, they don't sell it to that. They they want to make sure they're as fair as possible to seed producers. They sell it to us. So if we want to start a new field, that's right. That's right. They okay. not only yep. will sell it to you. Laura will come out. But it's basically built within it. the yellow tag program, right? To make sure that you have a yeah, source to, identified seed yep. available for when producers so of, want to get into the yellow tag. About half. 50-50, not in bulk pounds, but 50-50 in species are, are stuff hand-collected or gotten from you and I. And, and you know, Laura and the team up there is... Which I think their stuff is collected from remnants. Yes, at but least they, at some point. they will get a bunch of different remnants in a similar zone and then... Uh, or in, in the same zone and then combine that gene pool. That was okay. kind of the idea. Which... I have, a, I have a question. So we talk about needing Iowa ecotype, but then we also talk about not wanting to inbreed plants. You don't want the same genes. You know, they start yep. affecting each other. I've what? never heard I've never heard a good answer for this. But what is I wrong? The same question. With especially one state away, like um, uh, Echinacea purpurea, um, uh, purple coneflower. So not pale purple coneflower, but purple coneflower. What is wrong with getting some from Minnesota sourced, Missouri sourced, Iowa sourced, and Illinois sourced? Which I actually don't think it's in Minnesota. I think it's Iowa and South. Um, what, what's wrong with that? Or even going lower, going to Arkansas, because we're dealing with reconstructed prairie. Why wouldn't somebody we have, brought this exact question? Why wouldn't up we yesterday? have heavy, like heavy diversity? Why wouldn't we use like why wouldn't we use half of our pale purple coneflower and then buy other pale purple coneflower from Colorado? And I understand, like, I understand if you get it from five different states, maybe two of it won't work at all. But if you evenly distribute it, you get way more genetic diversity. I feel like stands would last longer. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? Lance, what do you think? <laughs> uh, I don't know. A lot of people are talking about this, too. I think it's a kind of a personal decision. Um, there's definitely more purist people who say, you know, really want it to be as local as possible. Um, there was a little bit of a discussion yesterday about uh, the idea of assisted migration. So, so you were in on that one, yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. Yep. Trying to get species that are from it south wasn't of here. The exact question, Nick Das, but very yeah. similar. And should we be looking at species that are south of here as the climate warms to try to? That was Russ Benedict, right? Uh, no, no, this I don't was remember. just yesterday's. Uh, oh, Russ talked Russ. about that very briefly. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, <clears throat> Here's something else I would throw in there, Nick. From Iowa, you know, the farther away you get, the more, the less adapted a species is going to be to that area. But where wouldn't you're that trying. weed itself out naturally? Uh, yes and no. What the way it might weed itself out is we had something really great and something that thrived. And then when it hybridized, well, it's not in, I don't even really like that term hybridized because technically anytime you have any it's kind like of cro- cross breeding, it's, it's like, I think hy- when you think of hybrid, you're thinking you're really truly creating like almost a new, like a liger, like a, yeah, like a <laughs> subspecies. And that's not really what's happening here. You could definitely, you could call any kind of sexual reproduction, a hybridization of genotypes. But anyways, that's a bio teacher rant. <laughs> When you have that new uh, that new generation of genes that comes out of that crossbreeding, 
your product could end up being we bred something really great with something not so great and we got something that's just good enough and that's all that ends up mm. being left okay so basically you're saying you could instead of just broadening it well you could just be bringing watering it down, it down. yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and so but to your point of like if you just went one state over or one eco yeah, uh, or at least ecotone one state over. to the east and west. I feel like that would heavily. Yeah, yeah. Latitude is going to definitely be the biggest factor, probably, but moisture too. You know, you go yeah, to the yeah. western part of this, the country, it gets drier. But um, uh, I do agree, though, with especially with coming from remnants where you're talking about our population is so limited of remnant plants that you're bound to end up with with uh, inbreeding. Plants, and a, a botanist would probably want to punch me for saying this right now, but plants, I think, can handle that a little bit better than like a lot of other, you know, kingdoms of organisms, especially uh, a lot kingdom of other, animalia. Other uh, no, there's uh, uh, two bacterial kingdoms, oh. a plant and a, what about uh, fungi animal, on its own? and then e- Plants, I should I should remember. I think there's five. I think there's five yeah. kingdoms: uh, protists, two bacteria, um, plants, and animals. I think. Oh, well, maybe fungi. I I, don't I, I should remember. That. I used to teach this remember. actually, but I, I don't remember now. <laughs> Sorry, um, Mrs. Wank. Uh, but anyways, uh, so think too. Plants can't move. They can't adapt like an animal does so when you take for instance a wolf out of its ecotype and put it into a new ecotype it it can say wow you know this is a lot hotter than where i'm normally from i'm gonna instead of hanging out in the wide open i'm gonna hang out in the shade all the time you know what i mean like it can go it can it can make right and it can actually respond to the stimuli right whereas a plant is stuck where it's at yeah. and so it's more it's more vulnerable to plants are just good at reproducing that's what they do right so you know the adjustment for a plant takes over takes place over generations whereas adjustment for a, a organism that can move and has a long lifespan can happen in seconds yeah i think one of the concerns also with the local ecotype is that because we have so few remnants and a lot of them are stressed uh, if you bring in seed from say Colorado that, and that would hybridize, then it could impact the genetics of the remnant prairie too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's very yeah. Like we had, I was saying this the other day, we were helping some, uh, a field out by Grinnell college, but the part we were offering species for, even though they were sourced Iowa local, they had a remnant there. They didn't want any species that were also in the remnant. They didn't want any of them. Hmm. So we, they had they gave us a list of hey this is what species we have in here what do you have that's not in there and, and we gave them some but um, yeah also we got a we got a boogie soon yeah we got a boogie but, soon. <laughs> man this has been a fun conversation yeah been all over the place been yeah. a little crazy we've had a few interruptions <laughs> as business continues yeah. to roll on I we thought we if... were past the busyness of planting season turns out still busy yeah <laughs> but I and also. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this, but Lance just kind of impromptu came out here, and we impromptu recorded this, so it was just nerding out. Was all it was. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. awesome to have Lance here with yeah. us today, and yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate you driving all the way out and spend the day with us. He's gonna go hang out with some bison here pretty soon. Yep. I think. Yeah, he actually wrestles bison. He's a professional <laughs> bison wrestler. I wish. Someday. B- bison Buster, I think is the bison. Name. The old Bison Buster. I'm gonna change you <laughs> my phone to Bison Buster. Man, well, Lance, thank you so much. Everyone, please remember that we are presented by Hawks and Native Seeds, a.k.a. Dad Pays the Bills. Um, And we will see you next time.